Chapter Six B of The Shake. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by M. J. Frank. The Shake by E. M. Hall. Chapter Six B. The emotions of the morning and the disappointment of the intended ride, together with the dismay produced by the unexpected visitor, all combined to agitate her powerfully, and she worked herself up into a fever of self-torture and unhappiness. She ended by falling asleep, and slept heavily for some hours. Zyla waked her with a shy hand on her arm, and a soft announcement of lunch and Diana sat up, rubbing her eyes, flushed and drowsy. She stared uncomprehendingly for a moment at the Arab girl, and then waved her away imperiously, and buried her head in the pillows again. Lunch? When her heart was breaking? Mindful of her lord's deputy, who was waiting in the next room, and whom she regarded with awe, Zyla held her ground with a timid insistence, until Diana started up wrathfully and bade her go into tones that she had never used before to the little waiting girl. Zyla fled precipitately, and thoroughly awakened, Diana swung her heels to the ground, and with her elbows on her knees rested her hot head in her hands. She felt giddy, her head ached, and her mouth was parched and dry. She got up languidly, and going to the table, studied her face in the mirror intently. She frowned at the reflection. She had never been proud of her own beauty. She had lived with it always, and it had seemed to her a thing of no consequence. And now that it had failed to arouse the love she wanted in Ahmed ben Hassan, she almost hated it. "'Are you going to have fever, or are you merely bad-tempered?' she asked out loud, and the sound of her own voice made her laugh in spite of her heavy heart. She went into the bathroom and soused her head in cold water. When she came back, a frightened Zyla was putting a small tray on the brass-topped table by the bed. "'Monsieur Gaston,' she stammered, almost crying, Diana looked at the tray, arranged with all the dainty neatness dear to the valet's heart, and then at the travelling clock on the table beside it, and realized that it was an hour past her usual lunch-time, and that she was extremely hungry after all. A little piece of paper on the tray caught her eye, and picking it up, she read in Gaston's clear though minute handwriting, "'At what hour does Madame desire to ride?' The servant clearly had no intention of giving up the program for the afternoon without a struggle. She smiled as she added a figure to the end of the note, and went to the curtains that divided the rooms. Gaston! Madame? She passed the paper silently through the curtains and went back to her lunch. When she sent Zyla away with the empty tray, she rescued the Vicomte de Saint-Hubert's book from the floor where she had thrown it and tried to read it dispassionately. She turned to the title-page and studied the penciled scrawl, Souvenir de Raoul, closely. It did not look like the handwriting of a small-minded man, 
but handwriting was nothing to go by, she argued obstinately. Aubrey, who was the essence of selfishness, wrote beautifully, and had once been told by an expert that his writing denoted a generous love of his fellow men, which deduction had aroused no enthusiasm in the baronet, and had given his sister over to helpless mirth. She turned the pages, dipping here and there, finally forgetting the author altogether in the book. It was a wonderful story of a man's love and faithfulness, and Diana pushed it aside at last with a very bitter sigh. Things happened so in books. In real life they happened very differently. She looked round the room with pain-filled eyes, at the medley of her own and the sheikh's belongings her ivory toilet appointments jostling indiscriminately among his brushes and his razors on the dressing-table, and then at the pillow beside her where his head rested every night. She stooped and kissed it with a little quivering breath. Ahmed, oh, monseigneur, she murmured longingly. Then, with an impatient jerk of the head, she sprang up, and dragged on her boots. She pulled a soft felt hat down over her eyes, and picked up the revolver the shake had given her. She paused a moment, looking at it with an odd smile, before buckling it round her slim waist. Gaston's face lit up with genuine pleasure when she came out to the horses. She had felt a momentary embarrassment before she left the tent, thinking of the last time he had ridden with her, but she had known from the moment he came back that night that he bore no malice, and the look on his face and his stammered words to the sheikh had indicated that the fear he felt for her was not for what might have happened in the desert, but for what might yet happen to her at the hands of his master and hers. The horse that she rode always now was pure white, not so fast as Silver Star, and very tricky, called the Dancer, from a nervous habit of dancing on his hind legs at starting and stopping like a circus horse. He was difficult to mount, and edged away shyly as Diana tried to get her foot into the stirrup. But she swung up at last, and by the time the dancer had finished his display of haute école, Gaston was mounted. "'After riding the dancer, I feel confident to enter for the concours hippique,' she laughed over her shoulder and touched the horse with her heel. She wanted exercise, primarily, hard physical exercise, that would tire her out and keep her mind occupied, and prevent her from thinking, and the horse she rode supplied both needs. He required watching all the time. She led him out to his full pace for his own sake and hers, and the air and the movement banished her headache and a kind of exhilaration came over her, making her almost happy. After a while she reined in her horse and waved to Gaston to come alongside. "'Tell me of this Vicomte de Saint-Aubert who is coming. You know him, I suppose, as you have been so long with Monseigneur.' Gaston smiled. "'I knew him before Monseigneur did. I was born on the estate of Monsieur le Comte de Saint-Aubert.' the father of Monsieur le Vicomte, I and my twin brother Henri. We both went into Monsieur le Comte's training stables, and then, after our time in the cavalry, 
Henri became valet to Monsieur le Vicomte, and I came to Monseigneur. Diana took off her hat and rubbed her forehead thoughtfully. Fifteen years ago, Ahmed must have been about twenty. Why should an Arab chief of that age, or any age, indulge in such an anomaly as a French valet, or, for that matter, why should a French valet attach himself to an Arab sheikh, and exile himself in the wilds of the desert? Whichever way she turned, the mystery of the man she loved seemed to crop up. She started arguing with herself in a circle. Why should the sheikh have a European servant? Or why should he not? Until she gave it up in hopeless confusion. She turned to Gaston with the intention of asking further of the coming visitor, and keeping the dancer as still as she could, sat looking at the valet with great questioning eyes, fanning her hot face with her hat. Gaston, whose own horse stood like a rock, was frankly mopping his forehead. Diana decided against any more questions. Gaston would naturally be hopelessly biased, having been born and brought up in the shadow of the family. And after all, she would rather judge for herself. One inquiry only she permitted herself. The family of Saint-Hubert, are they of the old or the new noblesse? Of the old, madame, replied Gaston quickly. Diana coaxed her nervous mount close beside his steadier companion, and thrusting his bridle and her hat into Gaston's hands, slipped to the ground and walked away a little distance to the top of a small mound. She sat down on the summit with her back to the horses and her arms clasped round her knees. All that the coming of this strange man meant to her rushed suddenly over her. He was a man, obviously, who moved in the world, her world, since he apparently travelled extensively, and his father was wealthy enough to run a racing stable as a hobby, and was a member of the dwindling class of ancienne noblesse. It was characteristic of her that she put first what she did. How could she bear to meet one of her own order in the position in which she was? She, who had been proud Diana Mayo, and now the mistress of an Arab sheikh? She laid her face on her knees with a shudder. The ordeal before her cut like a knife into her heart. The pride that Ahmed ben Hassan had not yet killed flamed up and racked her with humiliation and shame, the shame that still seared her soul like a hot iron, so that there were moments she could not bear even the presence of the man who had made her what she was, in spite of the love she bore him, and pleading fever prayed to be alone. Not that he ever granted her prayer, for he knew fever when he saw it, but would pull her down beside him with a mocking laugh that still had the power to hurt so much. The thought of what it would be to her to meet his friend had presumably never entered his mind, or if it had, it had made no impression and been dismissed as negligible. It was the point of view, she supposed drearily, the standpoint from which he looked at things was fundamentally different from her own. Racially and temperamentally they were poles apart. To him she was only the woman held in bondage, a thing of no account, 
She sat very still for a while with her face hidden, until a discreet cough from Gaston warned her that time was flying. She went back to the horses slowly, with white face and compressed lips. There was the usual trouble in mounting, and her strained nerves made her impatient of the dancer's idiosyncrasies, and she checked him sharply, making him rear dangerously. "'Careful, madame!' cried Gaston warningly. "'For whom? Me or Monseigneur's horse?' she retorted bitterly, and ignoring her hat, which Gaston held out to her with reproachful eyes, she spurred the horse viciously, making him break into a headlong gallop. It had got to be gone through, so get it over as soon as possible. And behind her, Gaston, for the first time in all his long service, cursed the master he would cheerfully have died for. The horse's nerves, like her own, were on edge, and he pulled badly, his smooth satiny neck growing dark and seamed with sweat. Diana needed all her knowledge to control him, and she began to wonder if, when they came to the camp, she would be able to stop him. She topped an undulation that was some little distance from the tents with misgivings, and wrapped the reins round her hands to prevent them slipping through her fingers. As they neared, she saw the sheik standing outside his tent, with a tall, thin man beside him. She had only a glimpse of the dark, unruly hair and a close-cut beard as she shot past, unable to pull up the dancer. But just beyond the tent, with the reins cutting into her hands, she managed to haul him round and bring him back. A couple of grooms jumped to his head, but owing to his peculiar tactics landed short, and he pranced to his own satisfaction and Diana's rage until the amusement of it passed and he let himself be caught. Diana had done nothing to stop him once she had managed to turn him. If the horse chose to behave like a fool, she was not going to be made to look foolish by fighting him when she knew that it was useless. In the hands of the men, he sidled and snorted, and dropping the reins, Diana pulled off her gloves and sat for a moment rubbing her sore hands. Then the shake came forward and she slid down. Before looking at him, she turned, and catching at the dancer's head, struck him angrily over the nose with her thick riding gloves and watched him led away, plunging and protesting, pulling the gloves through her fingers nervously until Ahmed ben Hassan's voice made her turn. "'Diane, the Vicomte de Saint-Hubert waits to be presented to you.' She drew herself up, and the color that had come into her face drained out of it again. Slowly she glanced up at the man standing before her, and looked straight into the most sympathetic eyes that her own sad, defiant ones had ever seen. Only for a moment, then he bowed with a conventional murmur that was barely audible. His lack of words gave her courage. Monsieur, she said coldly in response to his greeting, then turned to the sheik without looking at him. The dancer has behaved abominably. Gaston, my hat, please. Thanks. And vanished into the tent without a further look at any one. It was late, but she lingered over her bath, 
and changed with slow reluctance into the green dress that the sheik preferred a concession that she despised herself for making she had taken up the jade necklace when he joined her he turned her to him roughly with his hands on her shoulders and the merciless pressure of his fingers was indication enough without the black scowl on his face that he was angry you are not very cordial to my guest is it required of a slave to be cordial towards her master's friends she replied in a stifled voice what is required is obedience to my wishes he said harshly and is it your wish that i should please this frenchman it is my wish if i were a woman of your own race she began bitterly but he interrupted her if you were a woman of my own race there would be no question of it he said coldly you would be for the eyes of no other man than me but since you are not he broke off with an enigmatical jerk of the head since i am not you are less merciful than if i was she cried miserably i could wish that i was an arab woman i doubt it he said grimly the life of an arab woman would hardly be to your taste we teach our women obedience with a whip why have you changed so since this morning she whispered when you told me that you trusted no one to climb to my balcony in the hotel but yourself are you not an arab now as then have i become of so little value to you that you are not even jealous any more i can trust my friend and i do not propose to share you with him he said brutally she winced as if he had struck her and hid her face in her hands with a low cry his fingers gripped her shoulder cruelly. "'You will do as I wish?' The words were a question, but the intonation was a command. "'I have no choice,' she murmured faintly. His hands dropped to his sides, and he turned to leave the room, but she caught his arm. "'Monseigneur, have you no pity? Will you not spare me this ordeal?' he made a gesture of refusal you exaggerate he said impatiently brushing her hand from his arm if you will be merciful this once she pleaded breathlessly but he cut her short with a fierce oath if he echoed do you make bargains with me have you so much yet to learn she looked at him with a little weary sigh the changing mood that she had set herself to watch for had come upon him suddenly and found her unprepared. The gentleness of the morning had vanished, and he had reverted to the tyrannical, arbitrary despot of two months ago. She knew that it was her own fault. She knew him well enough to know that he was intolerant of any interference with his wishes. She had learned the futility of setting her determination against his there was one master in his camp whose orders however difficult must be obeyed his attention had concentrated on a broken fingernail 
and he turned to the dressing-table for a knife. She followed him with her eyes, and watched him carefully trimming the nail. She had often, amongst the many things that puzzled her, wondered at the fastidious care he took of his well-manicured hands. The light of the lamp fell full on his face, and there was a dull ache in her heart as she looked at him. He demanded implicit obedience, and only a few hours before she had made up her mind to unreserved submission, and she had broken down at the first test. The proof of her obedience was a hard one, from which she shrank, but it was harder far to see the look of anger she had provoked on the face of the man she loved. For two months of wild happiness it had been absent. The black scowl she had learned to dread had not been directed at her, and the fierce eyes had looked at her with only kindness or amusement shining in their dark depths. Anything could be borne but a continuance of his displeasure. No sacrifice was too great to gain his forgiveness. She could not bear his anger. She longed so desperately for happiness, and she loved him so passionately, so utterly, that she was content to give up everything to his will. If she could only get back the man of the last few weeks, if she had not angered him too far. She was at his feet, tamed thoroughly at last, all her proud, angry self-will swamped in the love that was consuming her with an intensity that was an agony. Love was a bitter pain, a torment that was almost unendurable, a happiness that mocked her with its hollowness, a misery that tortured her with visions of what might have been. She went to him slowly, and he turned to her abruptly. Well, his voice was hard and uncompromising, and the flash of his eyes was like the tiger's in the Indian jungle. She set her teeth to keep down the old paralyzing fear. End of chapter 6b Recording by M. J. Frank, Portland, Oregon